0: Today is December 7th, 2010, and my guest is Wafea Abdallah, the owner of Oasis Hair Salon in Rockville, Maryland. Wafea, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you, Russ.
0: So, what we're going to talk about today is a part of a series that we do occasionally uh, talking to people in business uh, about their lives and the challenges they face and uh, the economics along the way. So, first, let's do a little bit of history of you. How did you get started in the, in the hair business?
1: Uh, I was at the University of Maryland going for a degree in political science, and I thought that I wanted to go to law school. Um, I was supporting myself, and I thought, well, I've got to have a job that makes some money and that I can enjoy because law school can be so stressful. So I just kind of really looked at where I might enjoy being, and I realized that You know, I'm always in my head making people over, makeup, hair. So I looked into cosmetology school and realized that uh, I was in my sophomore year, I think, second semester. Wow. That I could be done with cosmetology (laughs) school and in a a career to support myself before I was done with uh, my bachelor's degree.
0: And then you wouldn't have to be a lawyer, which is another plus. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. For the lawyers out there, just a joke.
1: I, I thought I was still going to go to law school, but okay. once I was in the beauty industry and I saw what successful hairdressers could make, I thought, no way, <laughs> I'm staying right here. <laughs>
0: and you enjoyed, it. you enjoyed it, obviously. Very much. So you started off, after you went to cosmetology school, you started off in a, working, I assume, in a salon.
1: Yes. Well, while I was in cosmetology school and going to the University of Maryland, I also needed a part-time job, so I worked in a hair salon. And, uh, yes, once I completed my license, I uh, continued in that hair salon. And, you know, after that, I kind of went to another hair salon and moved around a little bit.
0: There's a lot of turnover in the business, right?
1: Yeah, there, there is, especially initially. I'm not sure what we're looking for, some magic pill. But mm-hmm. I think when you're first in the business, you're a little bit lost. There's really no guidance after cosmetology school. They really only prepare you to pass the state board exam. Yeah.
0: Like many other uh, other things in life, it's just to get you through the test. Exactly. So how did you get to where you are? How did you move from being somebody who was cutting hair for somebody else to somebody who's running your own salon?
1: Well, you know, as I said, I kind of kept moving from salon to salon. It lasts about two years. And again, I got real with myself, and I thought, well... I noticed that the people who stay where they are end up being busier and making a little more. But the circumstances of the salons I'd work in just felt unbearable to me. So I thought, well, I need to find a salon where I can really grow and maybe learn how to be an owner because ultimately if I don't like the atmosphere of working for other people, I've got to figure out a way to create my own. And that's how I landed at Oasis Salon. There was a gentleman there named Jeff Menard who owned it, and he seemed kind of easygoing and willing to teach, you know, his, uh, his ability to manage, and was supportive, more or less. And, you know, he was older than me, so I kind of, in the back of my head, thought, well, you know, maybe one day he'll be ready to sell and I'll be ready to buy. And actually, in the interview, he asked me, what are my long-term goals? <laughs>
0: Taking your owning your your business, pardon me. Owning your business was was what you were thinking about, but
1: oh, all along from the first day I went to beauty school, yes.
0: So, when how long have you have you owned it?
1: Uh, it'll be five years soon.
0: And what do you do differently uh, with your employees? So, one of the things you know, for those of us who go in to get a haircut, we get a haircut, we pay, we get it. usually in a Various types of salons. It depends, but usually we give it. We leave a tip, and we don't have any idea about usually about the people who work there, what their hours are, how often they ha- they come in, what their pay is, uh, what their opportunities are if they leave. Which, of course, as you say, early on, especially people are moving in and out. So, what did you try to do differently to make the environment uh, more both more pleasant and more productive?
1: Well, one of the things that I learned and being in the business is because it's traditionally a commission based business, what you're rewarding is is individual behavior it's you know whatever you do in your chair and as much as you want to preach team and you know positive attitudes, the uh, compensation doesn't really allow for that
0: did you make what Why don't you give us an idea of what in a typical salon, where a haircut is in the fifty dollar range, say for women. Your salon, I noticed the the prices are sixty five and up for women. I think forty and up for men. Um, In in that kind of salon, not yours, but in a typical salon in that market, how are the haircutters? How are those folks compensated in in a traditional setting?
1: Usually, it's fifty percent commission and then somehow the owner will figure out a way to uh, take money back uh, for um, supplies and, and other things. So it might be 50 cent commis- 50% commission with maybe anywhere from 8 to 10% off the top um, for, uh, I guess they call it for product fees and whatnot.
0: So if I'm in one of those salons and I'm cutting hair, I have an incentive to cut quickly so I can get more and more customers, for, get more commissions per, per day, per hour. But, of course, I have to do a good job or no one's going to come back to me. Exactly. So that motivates me to do a good job as quickly as I can while still maintaining quality. And as you say, it tends to encourage people looking out for themselves. Why, is that, why would that be a problem in a hair salon? In my view, you know, the person cuts my hair. What's the team aspect that's important?
1: Well, you know, it's about quality of your of your work atmosphere. When you when it's all about the individual, let's say your hair cutter isn't available that day, or called in sick, and you really needed to get your haircut because you have an important business meeting, and then you're going to have to figure out, well, who else can I go to? And then a lot of times these these, these uh, you know operators basically want to take a contract out on you. How dare you sit in someone else's chair? So it just doesn't really, it's not very customer service oriented, mm-hmm. and it's not going to promote a team environment.
0: So how do you pay your employees differently to, to promote the team uh, the team feeling?
1: We are salary and team bonus. Uh, in 2005, no, I'm sorry, 2004, I went to a seminar because, as I said, I was always trying to learn the business aspects. And a man named Neil Dukoff, who owns uh, Strategies, that's a salon and spa consulting company, came up with this team-based structure. And I went as a stylist, not as an owner. And it was a four-day event. And, you know, everything he said sounded good. The first day I thought, wow, this is great, but not the pay thing. Now, remember, (laughs) I'm going as a stylist. Right. you like that
0: commission thing? Pardon me? You like the commission thing as a stylist. Most of the time?
1: Yes, I did, but I didn't even know what he had to say. And again, you know, I just read an inspiration, and I don't remember who it was by, but it said, if you want to make a lot of people angry, change something. Mm-hmm. You know, so part of it is just fear of, of change. Sure. So the second day, I heard wonderful, great things, team and positive and and, and celebrating wins and, and motivating and coaching. I said, Wonderful. Never heard this stuff before. Boy, do we need this, but not the pay thing. So by day three, we break it down and we get into the pay thing, as I called it. And I listened and I thought, huh, wow. Because as a busy stylist, what he did is he guaranteed my salary. It then enabled the business owner to give benefits such as health insurance, um, vacation pay, maybe a little bit of sick leave, and it it guarantees my income, and then I don't have to break my back doing so many different people or so many different uh, procedures on one person. And what it also enabled uh, a busy stylist who's been in the business a while to do is to mentor the, the stylists that are coming up in the business. So basically, you have the potential to make the same or more money, but you don't have to physically work as hard and you get to be recognized as a senior in the business
0: but that sounds like a bad deal for the owner now so you just said well it's true that when it's when you get paid by commission it's a little cutthroat you don't you're very jealous of people stealing your customers within the bit within the salon which is very destructive and i think as a, customers are very aware of that they know how zealously uh, the stylists want uh keep their their core group But now you're telling me, oh, but it's great because then you don't have to work as hard. So as the owner, how do you make sure then that people don't take advantage of the fact that they're not on commission anymore?
1: You know, and that's a really good question. First of all, you know, you create a culture where not working hard is is not acceptable. But also, what I'm saying is you don't have to physically work as hard. So in other words, I'm able to then start giving some of my business out to people that have been training with me who I think will do a good job. So it becomes less about me squeezing everyone that I possibly can in and more about guaranteeing the quality of the service for the client. But I don't have to worry about my compensation any longer. So as an owner, what happens now in traditional salons is you may have, let's say, 10 operators. Your productivity means the hours that you're selling for service is maybe, on the average, 50%. That means that three or four, because you know know the old saying, it's what, 20% of your people Mm. who are making 80% of the business and and vice versa. So, you know, now you're able to kind of spread the business out a little bit, and you're able to raise your productivity. So if you only have, in traditional salons, 50% productivity, that means you've got about, out of the 10, maybe two to three stylists who are really producing.
0: Who everybody wants, Pardon me? Who everybody wants, who's overbooked, and everybody's asking for a favor before that crucial event. They want to get their hair look, to look nice.
1: Exactly. And then you've got about, you know, seven stylists who are maybe 40% busy, maybe, you know, sometimes not. Those Now, those stylists that are sitting around doing nothing, you know, a lot of times, you know, idle hands aren't a good thing. And so they're kind of just talking uh, as an owner under... The, the salary um, structure, those stylists that aren't busy, we have them doing a lot of other things. They might be working on promotions for the salon. They might be redecorating the salon. They might be, you know, putting some uh, retail uh, sales together. There's a lot of things that, you know, the owner does that everyone can do. And, you know, the more heads are better than one, of course. You have greater ideas.
0: So one of the advantages of this strategy in general, and of course there are a lot of businesses that don't work on commission, they work on salary. But one of the advantages that you have is you tend to be in a, in a pretty small space. So if someone's literally loafing, not doing what they're supposed to do or worse, doing something that's destructive uh, like talking and distracting people or, or
1: exactly. doing something
0: inappropriate, you see it. You can always observe that. Yeah. So how, um, two questions. Oh, first, finish up. You have a salary and you also have a bonus. Talk about the bonus, and then then I want to ask you something else.
1: Well, the bonus is that we have a financial goal every month, and each time that we meet that financial goal, everybody in the business is going to get a bonus. And that's based on, you know, if you're full-time or part-time. Of course, part-timers won't get the same bonus as full-time. But that way, everybody's in on it. That means the shampoo assistants, the front desk receptionists, because it's not fair when only the stylists are getting any kind of compensation. You know, and everyone else who's really helping sales and promoting services aren't really getting a whole lot. This puts the whole team on the same page.
0: And And the bonus is a percentage of salary.
1: It it, is. Bonus is a percentage of total sales for the month.
0: Okay, so the the does everybody get the same bonus?
1: No, if you're full time, you get the same bonus. Okay, and if you're part time, you get
0: that a lower one. Yeah, but you don't. But if you're a more productive, if you. Book more more clients. You don't get a bigger bonus than somebody who's not as as effective. You get the same bonus.
1: Absolutely, because in our business, everyone yeah. is contributing significantly.
0: Does everybody get the same salary?
1: Absolutely not.
0: Okay. So so the best stylists, you're going to pay a little bit more to keep them and to keep and to make them uh, compensate them for what they're producing. Correct. So they're not literally on commission on any one minute, but there is an incentive if you're more productive to, to get a little more money.
1: Well, absolutely, and we actually have a broadband that tells you how do you get from level one to level two, and it's not all about what you're producing in your chair. Um, a lot of it is, you know, what's your productivity rate, what's your pre-booking rate, those are the critical numbers we look at, but also what's your attitude, uh, what's your contribution to the team. Are you available? Are you being uh, uh, when we say are you available? That means because we we have no gossip, um, we have to use direct talk, and being available means when someone has an issue that they bring to your attention, are you available to hear it?
0: So how do you do that? Tell me how how do you how do you as the owner give that feedback to your employees, and how do they g- give it to each other? If someone feels that someone was in, acted inappropriately or destructively, selfishly, or hurt hurt someone in uh, Maybe unintentionally, we hope. How does that communication take place?
1: Well, you know, we work on it. It's, it's it's not an easy thing. And we know, most companies, the accountability piece is the hardest thing to implement. But, you know, it shows. It shows in your, in your posture. It shows in your attitude. If you're disturbed by something, most people will come and tell the owner. And really, again, it's about leadership. I have to make sure that, you know, I walk the walk, and I'm able to be held accountable when people bring things to my attention, but also when they bring things to my attention about someone else. What I immediately say is, have you talked to them? Have you held them accountable? And we work on these things over and over and over again until it's just part of our culture.
0: Is it formal, though, or informal? Is it Do those conversations take place sort of along the way, or do you have weekly sessions where you talk things out?
1: No, they're informal, but we do have daily huddles, which are kind of pre-day meeting, inspiration, you know, rah rah cheerleading. Um, here's our goals. How are we going to get there? Here's what everyone needs to know. So that's daily, and then we have monthly meetings.
0: How long does the daily meeting last?
1: Maybe five minutes.
0: Okay, so that's basically putting people, making them aware of where where you are, trying to inspire them a little bit. Uh, do you talk numbers? Do you talk dollars in those meetings at all?
1: We do. We talk about what we did the day before and what our goal is for that day.
0: And how do the people who you, who you um, employ, how do they know to trust you? So when you say, oh, we didn't make our numbers this month, how do they know that you're telling them the truth and rather than just trying to keep them from getting their bonus?
1: Those numbers are available to everyone.
0: In what format? How can they get access to them?
1: They're on our computer and um in fact most days i'm not I'm not the only one doing huddle It's someone else who's preparing it. They have access to what the sales are from you know six years ago when we first brought in a computer. They can just look it up
0: so one issue, of course, in this kind of setting, it sounds it sounds great, right? Um, and I'm sure when you heard it discussed by a, a consultant who's telling you how great it is and how the team spirit and all that uh, gets you inspired as a potential owner and then as an actual owner, and here you are talking about it, and it sounds great, but I'm sure there are days when it's not so great. There are days when someone comes in, they've had a fight with their their spouse, or their kids are late for school, and they rush in. And any one day, I'm sure there are challenges and one of the things, obviously, that is the hardest one of the things that must be one of the hardest part of your jobs of your job is to hire people who can handle that. So when you make a hire, one, what's the process, and two, does it does it all does it often work out, always work out? So obviously, you can be people who don't can't handle that environment, don't want to be part of it.
1: Absolutely, and I'll tell you, I ask a lot of business owners and people who are you know, head of their organizations, about hiring practices. And I think everyone comes to the same conclusion. It is a total crapshoot. Yeah, it's hard to do. It is a very difficult thing. I've seen so many times people present themselves fabulously. And first day on the job, you're thinking, wow, who is this person? I
0: made a huge mistake, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and we're able, fortunately, um, to address that immediately. We don't waste time. Uh, our hiring practices are again because we're a team structure. One of the things I put under people's broadbands, which is the thing we use to to grow in the business, you know, to grow in your levels, is that people in the beginning at level one and level two um, are required to do secondary interviews. And you know, we we script it. We talk about it. What does do- that mean?
0: What do you mean a secondary interview?
1: Well, we when someone's coming in to our salon, we don't just do one interview. We do two, possibly three interviews. Okay. So they have to do a second interview, and um, we script it. We prepare them. We also look at, you know, talk about just from experience. What else do we notice? If there, if there are appointments at 3 o'clock, what time did they come in? How are they dressed? How's their eye contact? Was their cell phone on, du- on during the uh, interview? So we, we we do prepare and we do talk about it.
0: When you say we, are you, who's doing those those interviews? The team. Oh, so you all? Do you all interview a new person?
1: We all not not all of us will interview a new person, but uh, two to three of us will interview a new person. Okay. And I have found that to be much better than just me interviewing. That's for sure. And because, really, they have to come in and work with us and work with different personalities. And I found that people, because, like I said, we have a script, but you can go off script if you think of a better question. And I've had people ask questions that were, like, just blew my mind. I thought, wow, why didn't I think of that? What a great question that is. Um, Or I've had, you know, some of the team make observations that I completely missed. And so I find by getting more of the team involved in the interviewing process, we have greater success.
0: Now, what role do references play in that process? I'm sorry. What role do references play? I'm sure some of these people are coming from another salon, right? They're not starters that usually, as they're often, I assume, have experience. How do you find out what they were like in their previous job?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, in this business, you, you almost can't do that. Cannot. Um, no, because if they're getting ready to leave a salon, they're not telling their owner. Right. But I'll tell you, we aren't really, the, the way our business is structured, we really don't appeal to a lot of people who are well-established in the business. We're going to appeal to people who move to the area and, you know, are licensed and have experience. We are going to appeal to people who are just out of beauty school. And in that case, we can call for references.
0: Right. So you are very popular as a stylist yourself. Yes. And how many hours a week are you cutting hair still?
1: Um, Roughly. About 32.
0: And the rest of the time you are keeping track of everything else, keeping the business organized, dealing with the thousands of issues that come up unexpectedly in, in a business. So you're pretty busy. Yeah. But one of the things you talked to me about before when we're talking about this interview is and you alluded to it briefly when we we're talking earlier is you um you like to mentor new people. And I assume talk to me about what that involves because I you know again as a first of all as a man who's not too concerned about his hair um you know I, there's a haircut I like but it's not so hard. Obviously there's an enormous range of demands for women's hair in particular in terms of the skills that are necessary. Um, what when you're mentoring a new person or a person who's, who's relatively inexperienced, what proportion of it is the, the things you mentioned like eye contact and professionalism, how much of it's technique, how much of it is, I don't know, intangibles, other things, uh, and what's beautiful about this is the other people, as you point out, want to mentor them also to help create a better team. So tell, tell me a little bit about that mentoring process, what it actually involves. Well,
1: when we bring in a new stylist, uh, the first thing we have to do, you know, our salon specializes in curly hair. And so we have to start teaching them about that. We, we, again, we actually do have a structure for mentoring and, um, you know, the steps that we have to go through. Uh, well, l- let me backtrack a little bit. First, we teach them the business. So we teach them about the desk, answering phones, making appointments, um, how to get the numbers, looking at the critical numbers, understanding those numbers. We then teach them about um, shampooing. Even though we have assistance, we all have to pitch in when we're busy. And, uh, you know, what kind of head massage we're looking for, how to help people relax, what we do in the winter, like using warm towels versus in the summer um, where we don't have to do that. You know, we talk a lot about guest relations, you know, making sure that we greet people as soon as they come in and, you know, offering refreshments and, you know, the communication piece is really important. Then we get into the skills, and we start by teaching them what we do with curly hair, how to assist people, because immediately you can assist the busier stylist. And from there, we kind of just, just go through the motions. And y- your question was, how much of it is technique? I'd say 80%, because... You know, it's a hundred percent for everything. It's a hundred percent customer service. It's a hundred percent technique, and you got to give everything your all. And it really isn't that difficult when you do it. You know, and sometimes really giving things your all take less effort than giving you know fifty percent. So, and in our business, there there is no other option. So yeah. So what um,
0: happens? What happens when one of your longtime customers comes in? One of your clients, you're busy, you ask her if she can go to this new person, and that person doesn't do the job that you expect from them, which I'm sure has happened before. What do you do?
1: Yeah, you know, and it's never, um, first of all, you have to know where your people stand and what you can give them. And it has has happened, but it hasn't been a total disaster. (laughs) It might be if we take a curly head and we have to blow it straight and maybe it's still a little frizzy. I'll step in and finish it. Um, we make sure that when people leave, they their needs are met and that they are completely satisfied. We also do have a service guarantee because sometimes you might go home and, I don't know, your haircut, maybe you envisioned it a little shorter or your color a little lighter. And so we give a two-week service guarantee that you can come back free of charge for anything to be tweaked. And you can, you know, go to anybody for that.
0: Do people do that? Do they come back?
1: You know, it's not a large percentage, but um, it, it does happen, absolutely.
0: And when I was asking about technique, what I meant is just a, kind of a silly question. The, the literal issue of, like, how do you hold the scissors? Where do you cut? Are any of those issues coming up, especially for people who are not used to cutting curly hair, and they may have been trained, well-trained in, a, in, in cosmetology school, but they're not used to this. How many times are you teaching them what you might call tricks of the trade, things that you've learned over the years?
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, you know what? We have biweekly workshops where on Tuesdays we meet, and this is senior and junior staff, and um we have to try different techniques we We work on things, and so we're constantly developing our skill, all of us and interestingly enough, as a stylist who's been in the business uh gosh twenty one years now, I have improved my skill tremendously by holding these workshops because We do work on things, but we also, when we've kind of worked on what we need to and maybe we don't have, you know, um, anything on the agenda, we have to try something new. We have to try a new color scheme. We have to try a new technique. And that keeps us fresh and out of the box. And I'll tell you, after being in the business 21 years, I, I don't feel it. I feel like I just started. And it's awesome. And it keeps things fresh.
0: When you have these workshops, are you practicing on real – you're cutting each other's hair, practicing on other people? Who's, do, who's the – who are the guinea pigs?
1: Mannequin head.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but whose hair are they wearing?
1: It's human hair. You know, I have no idea. Um, I've seen uh, Chris Brock's uh, movie – what was it called? Something About Hair. Uh-huh. And I saw that women in India go and sacrifice their hair in temples. And then from the back door, these temples sell the hair. So I'm guessing maybe something like that. <laughs>
0: but human hair wigs are very expensive, right? So you guys are chopping up a wig every 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 couple of weeks or every.
1: Yes, and I and I know where you're getting. Some wigs can be very expensive. Um, these mannequins, Not you so know, bad. they they come with long hair and they run about thirty <laughs> to forty dollars.
0: Okay, interesting. Uh, so, what about technology? You so say you feel like you're new in the business. Are there things? Obviously, there's been, in the last 20 years, there's been some, some innovation in, in the range of products that are available, f- free of animal testing, more organic stuff. How about the actual technique of haircutting? Is there, are there tools or devices or other things that have changed that you have to keep uh, up to date on? Uh,
1: yes, things are always changing. Yes and no. I mean, the shears are going to be the shears. Do, do they make better quality ones? Absolutely, um, but it's more—it's more technique, really. Um, sometimes, you know, they might have like a cool highlighting comb that they didn't make before, but it's not going to be a whole lot different. Sometimes they might, instead of using foil for highlights, they have like a kind of um, uh, plastic paper, or I, I can't really say plastic because it's more environmental than that. So, kind of little things like that.
0: So that's not, not a big part of your of the twenty year change.
1: <clears throat> no, it really isn't. And what's really fortunate is I know they had something called I believe it's the Floby or something that where you could take it home and cut your own hair and adjust it, and you know it didn't take off. and And we're so fortunate that our business really can't be automated, you know, and it, and it is going to keep the human aspect where people still come together and you know. Um, communicate and and have their hair done by a human being. That that's really the greatest thing about our business. That that part can't change.
0: So let's talk a little bit about uh we talked about hiring. Have you had to fire people?
1: Yes. Oh, I don't like it.
0: No, it's no fun. So how do you how do you handle that and and how do you make that decision?
1: Uh, well, I mean there's some obvious things obviously like stealing or um uh you know, bad customer service, um, bad attitude, you know, those things are, are easy because you just say, you know, thanks for everything, it's not a good fit, good luck. Um, but then sometimes it might be some bad attitude, some kind of underlying issues, and there, you know, you feel it and you, you you sense it, but you can't put your finger on it. And as an owner, what I've been taught, and as a person, what I do anyway, is you recognize fish stinks from the head down. And so you first look at what conversations am I not having with that person? What mentoring and coaching am I not doing with that person? Um, <clears throat> if I focus on them a little more and, and find different ways to communicate with them and uh, you know have regular meetings with them, can I turn them around? And so you kind of try that first. And if it's just futile, you just you just tell them thanks for everything. You know, I love what Neil says. What you're giving them is a a career opportunity to work somewhere else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ideally, I hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, give me an idea. You don't have to give me the specifics. Give me an idea of what a stylist can make uh, generally. Uh, you don't have to talk about your business per se, because most of us have no idea. You have to go to cosmetology school because you have to be licensed, right? Um how long typically is cosmetology school?
1: Uh, about a
0: year, a little less. And what does a say an average stylist make in a in a shop, say of your level of quality and, and not literally yours, but one of that again that price range of, of customer of say the you know 50 to 75 range, and then what does a superstar make? What does a great stylist make?
1: The average traditionally um, under commission is about 30,000,
0: 35,000. And
1: they're kind of stuck there for a long time. And then a superstar could make, um, oh, anywhere from 80,000 up.
0: And obviously, if you're really in demand, you can cut hair in Hollywood and and make, or for politicians, there's some obvious. High end. That's not what I'm talking about. Just a general successful stylist in a good salon. Correct. You're saying can make eighty to eighty and up.
1: Yes, and and keep in mind when I say that I don't include gratuity. With gratuity, it's definitely more.
0: So, what do you think makes a great one? Uh, what separates a superb stylist uh, from a, just a good one, an okay one? What do you think makes them makes them better?
1: I think there's really two things. Uh, one is the ability to continue growing in your education. Never stop learning. Always keep working on your skill. Um, and two is your attitude, you know, because if you have a good attitude and you're giving good customer service, people really want to come to you. And if you're negative and have a bad attitude, people don't want to be around that energy.
0: So when you talk about your skills, you know, as you said, you're obviously you were better than, than you were 20, 10 years ago or five years ago when you were younger and less experienced. Yeah. But you were in high demand, say, 10 years ago, I assume. So you were doing something right. It wasn't, again, it wasn't just how the hair looked when you, when it was done. There was some intangible, I assume, that made clients comfortable and, and eager to come to your, to your chair.
1: Well, thank you. Um, you know, again, it's, I have, from day one, there has not been a year that goes by where I am not at least getting um, six educational events, at what, least. And
0: what are, those, what are those? Give me an idea.
1: You know, sometimes it can be in the form of hair shows. Sometimes it's the form of um, classes and workshops that you attend. You know, I think when, when I became busy, I don't even remember when it was, 10, 12 years ago, Um, I really, my number soared once I went to Vidal Sassoon in London. And I knew that was something that, you know, successful stylists had done, and now I understand why. But then to continue to always do that. And we've brought it even further in our salon. Not only is it required that you attend education, we actually bring education into the salon. Um, Right now we have, every six weeks, we have someone coming in. But also, because biweekly we're practicing, And, you know, we compare ourselves to athletes or anyone else who's successful. You're not going to be successful unless you practice. And that's why we have the mannequin heads. And and that's something else we do. When, you know, all our projects are done and you don't have a client, you know, for a couple of hours, you do something on a mannequin.
0: And do do, do the people do it?
1: Absolutely. They want to.
0: Let's talk about that Vidal Sassoon experience Yes. One of the things, you know, we we asked you about technology changing, but one of the things that does change, and you said it didn't change that much, but one of the things that does change, obviously, is style. Absolutely. So, you know, for some reason, the thing that pops into my head is Farrah Fawcett. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Uh, that's a little before your time. Um, no, no. It's a haircutter. But But the, you know, obviously there are looks that come into into fashion. There are looks that are dreadfully out of fashion. How do you, how much, so let me ask, before we get to the how you train in these areas, more basic question, how many times does a client come in and say, make me look good, versus they come in with a picture and say, I want to look like this. I want this haircut.
1: Most clients don't come with a picture. Most clients come and know what they like or don't like about their hair, and that's how we, we address it. And part of, you know, uh, staying um, in tune with your skill and perfecting your skill and learning new things is that you you know the the number one reason they say the clients leave stylus is boredom they want something new and they're not able to get it with their stylus and so that's really you got to keep fresh you got to make sure you're kind of ready to lead your people into different things so um, you know that that that's that's what helped. I'm sorry, I lost track well, of the question.
0: No, that's all right. That's good. No, that's good. Well, I've got a couple pieces to it, but I have to ask you something else first. How many times have you given a haircut uh, and, and done it the way the person wanted? You know, they wanted to take this much off or do this look, and they when they, when you were done, they burst into tears? Once. You know, well, that's good. That's, that's good. Well, <laughs> that was enough. It? Do you remember that was,
1: it? That was plenty of time. <laughs> do you remember it? Very well.
0: What happened?
1: It was too short.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. And
1: there's nothing you can do. It's too
0: late, yeah. I and whose idea was to make it short?
1: I thought hers.
0: Yeah, well, but afterwards <laughs> it was yours, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> well, and actually that's a good point because that's something that we script and really work on is consultation. We take a lot of time to do consultations with our clients because it's really communication. You know, if you can get the communication down and really hear what they're saying, and we practice that and we role play, you know, what is active listening and repeating back what they say and and all of that. If you have a good consultation, you, you have ninety nine percent reduced your your uh, your chances of of, uh, or let's just say you've increased your chance for success by ninety nine percent.
0: Yeah, for sure. So going back to this question of style changes, so you know, a new look comes into fashion or a new look goes out of fashion and you might have a stylist who was really good at the old one. Uh, so one way, obviously, you get to the new one is you use the mannequins, you practice. But obviously, sometimes you go to London or wherever you go to learn new techniques, new styles. Is that what you mainly, when you said a good stylist, you knew that they would go to Vidal Sassoon. Is that what you got out of that experience or was it something else?
1: No, it really wasn't so much style as much as technique, um, you know, your, your shears are a tool, and you can do all kinds of things. You know, it's, it's an art form, and you can do all kinds of things with your shears, how you hold it, how you cut, how you slice through the hair, how you cut into the hair, how you cut so that you can make the hair do different things, whether it's have more volume, have less volume, you know... Um, uh, for women's bangs, whether it kind of sways over to the side so that they, you know, all of what we do now is because we understand, you know, fashion goes with what's happening in, in life and women don't have time. You know, the, the days of uh, going to your stylist every week and getting a set are gone. Yep. Uh, the, the Farrah Fawcett days where you want everything to be in place and spraying it are gone. Women are much more natural now. And they don't want to work that hard on their hair. And so what we're learning, the techniques we're learning, are how to cut and how to create a look so that they have to do very little and their hair looks good.
0: Uh, You mentioned the shears, which we lay people call scissors. Um, Mm. How much do you pay for those? What's a good pair cost? How many do you have as, as as a stylist? and. Do you own your own? Does the shop yeah. own
1: them? No, no. You you have to own your own. I mean, that's that's such a personal tool. It's important. Um, I've got personally, I think three. I just bought a new pair. Um, good ones are about five to six hundred dollars. Yo! <laughs> just a pair of scissors. Hey, Can't some you to, that are a lot
0: more than that? <laughs> you go to Staples and get a good pair of scissors
1: for twenty bucks. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> These are a little better. Yeah, it's a lot better.
0: <laughs> did they have like a microwave oven for the $500 attached to it or maybe an iPod? That's a lot of
1: money. No, but you know what? You can go through hair like it's like it's butter. You and can just slice right through
0: who it. Who makes the best?
1: Um, I like Hakari. That's a Japanese company. That's my favorite right now.
0: And your other stylist? Did they own that level of shears or do they have something a little less expensive?
1: No, they do own that level of shears because uh, it's... That's that that tool's really important. It's very important. You can't do a good haircut with bad shears. How you often, can, but it won't yeah. be the same.
0: How do you? How often do you sharpen them?
1: Um, maybe once or twice a year, if that. Ah,
0: uh-huh. so it's yeah, not so bad.
1: Yeah. And how
0: do you do that? Do someone come in, or do you send them out?
1: We used to have someone that comes in, but you know. You, you, I don't. I haven't seen him in a while. And you gotta, you know, you. I've had someone sharpen my shears who wasn't. A, I didn't think as good, so now I just send them back to California to Hakari and have them do it, and they mail it back.
0: Cool. Let's talk about pricing. Uh, I noticed that on your website, women's haircuts. It says from sixty five. Yeah. So what is that that from means? It can be more. It's it's at least sixty five. How right. do you decide how much to charge? Two questions really. Um, Obviously, you're in competition with cheaper salons who have an advantage because they're a little cheaper. You're you're in competition with upscale, more expensive salons that might have more amenities but are more expensive. How do you decide what level of amenities and pricing and atmosphere you want? How would you get there? And secondly, for an individual customer, it says from 65, obviously, I assume that depends on what other stuff that you do to the, besides cut the hair, or is, there, is it more than that?
1: Okay. So the first question is the, how do you decide pricing and the amenities and what to put into your salon? Is that correct?
0: Yeah, because you could chart. It could say from 80 or it could say from 50. You decided from 65. So how do you decide that?
1: Well, what we did um, is we actually researched our area, and we looked at salons that are um, comparable to ours. And we try to stay a little bit less than that, about $5 less. Uh, and as far as what we put into our salon and amenities, well, you know, you, again, you know, if you listen to clients, they'll tell you. They lead you. Um, for example, we offer teas, and then we, we use our, the Tazo teas. And sometimes the client will say, oh, have you tried this, this, and that? And you'll ask, well, what's, you know, why why do people like it? What's you know, the deal with that and they'll tell you and you get it and then everyone, you know, loves it. Um, So if you just kind of listen to what your clients are saying and for us, we want to love being at work, we want to drink the teas, we want to eat the food, we want to listen to the music and we want to be in a friendly atmosphere too and I think that translates to the clients, you know, if we're enjoying our atmosphere and our culture, they're going to enjoy it too and I will tell you, everyone that walks in the door Says the energy in here is great. So Russ, you haven't been in our salon. I invite you to come and see it. <laughs> um, and, and then the second question was, uh, what was the second question? Oh, uh, from from sixty-five. Yeah, how do
0: you, what does, for a particular client? If, if if a woman or man comes in and says, "I want a haircut," how much is it? Did you what determines what the answer to that question is?
1: Okay, it will be sixty-five. However, we have to cover our basis because sometimes. You know, someone will come in and they've got hair that's going to take three hours to do. We've nope. got to be able to charge a little more. Um, but Why would
0: what, they, what kind of hair is that? Uh, you no, know, it might
1: be really thick hair that that requires. Um, not only do they want it, you know, maybe it's really tightly curled, and they want it blown straight, and then flat ironed, and then you know whatever else might come with it. And we've got to have the flexibility of being able to charge a little more. And so if we say that the price absolutely is 65 then we're going to be misrepresenting um, the the facts. If we say, well, you know, we're going to need to charge you $10 more. And we again, that comes into the consultation.
0: Right. Okay, so it's not like a surprise.
1: We work really hard on that because, hey, all of us are consumers, and nobody wants to go up to the counter to pay, and suddenly it's way more than you expected. So, so we, you, we tell people ahead of time. How do you get
0: that customer feedback besides the casual, you know, as you're moving around in the shop, you see people smiling or not smiling, you see them happy or not happy. Do you do anything else to get people to talk about the experience, your, your clients?
1: Well, we do. We, first of all, when people come in for the first time, we give them a small survey and a letter about our salon. And in the survey, it basically asks, you know, general information, name, address, phone number, email, if they want to give it their birthday, Um, if we choose to do promotions for birthdays, which we haven't done yet, but it's on the agenda. And then it just says, what do you look for in a salon? What have you always wanted in a hair salon? How do you rate your first impression of this place? And why did you leave your last stylist? Every meeting, we go over these surveys so that we know that we're really giving people back what they want.
0: And when you say every meeting, you, you talked about the daily meetings. Those are short. You're not doing that feedback there, right?
1: No, that's a huddle. That's a pre-day huddle, we call it. Um, no, that's we have monthly meetings.
0: And what are those monthly? How long are they?
1: They're about an hour and a half to two.
0: And you're doing the numbers, your business, how's it going? Exactly. Uh, these issues about... How with people whether people are happy or not what else are you doing then in, in those meetings
1: well um, we, we definitely talk about the critical numbers we talk about what our goal is for the, the next um, month even even though they know that right away um, we talk about what's working what isn't sometimes we do um, swaps strengths weaknesses opportunities and no swaps and threats um and then you know a part of it might be you know how we're doing um communication I mean it's almost part of its therapy you know if we notice you know we we might go over um, the five team functions again which are trust accountability conflict um buy in and measure because that's really the basis for how we operate and you know um if we do have any kind of um challenges. We talk about it as a team and we talk about how we're going to handle it and uh, everyone gets to kind of put in and we go from there.
0: And what percentage of that hour, hour and a half is uh, Wafea talking versus somebody else talking, do you think?
1: You know, thank you for asking that. I'll tell you, in the beginning, it was mostly me talking.
0: (laughs) I bet it was, yeah. And
1: (laughs) each meeting, I promised myself that I'm going to talk less. And so... Now it's maybe fifty fifty
0: uh-huh you mentioned threats. what kind of threats What do you worry uh, about
1: for example, in our little shopping center, and I mean it's a small shopping center we have we're one of three hair salons whoa exactly um, and threats are going to be whatever you know I throw it out to the team. What do they envision as threats? It might be that not only are there three hair salons in our shopping center. But, in the shopping center across Luton Parkway, there's another two. And in the shopping center that's you know across Edmonston, there's another three.
0: <laughs> so you're you know you're working as hard as you can to to make your salon competitive with those. But of course, you know, any one day, any one week, any one month, any one year, things are happening that are your responsibility because you're doing a great job or maybe not. But there are things happening out in the world. So, you know, right now we're in the middle of tougher economic times than usual. The Washington area is not affected as much as some areas. But I assume you see some effect of people shifting down. Maybe you're getting some more business from upper-end salons, but you're losing business to lower-end salons. Do you notice those kind of changes happening?
1: Uh, Not not really. Um, The economy, I think, for about six months affected – what we call upsells. So if a woman comes in for a haircut and her hair is really dry and we recommend a 15 to 20 dollar deep conditioning treatment, they might turn it down. Um, you know, instead of buying the large size bottles of shampoo, they may buy the smaller ones. So that's kind of how we noticed it. But we were so blessed because we were growing so much as a salon that we really I mean, and, and what was it, 2008, I think, was the tough economic year. We grew 20%. Worst.
0: Wow. Well, you're doing something right, <clears throat> for sure.
1: Well, we're watching our numbers. You know, it's open book management. We understand what we're spending versus what's coming in, and we're, we're doing the best we can. Do
0: your employees ever ask for something to make the place nicer, better food, better tea, whatever it is,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you've got to decide whether to do it or not?
1: All the time. But you know what? They're usually cheaper
0: than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're what we call in economics the residual claimant. So you get – the bottom line does all flow to you, which is, means even though they have a stake, it's not as big as your stake. Correct. So um, One thing we didn't talk about, you talked about some of the education you give the, the team. You, you have the training sessions. You work with them a little bit every day, a little more every month. Uh, don't you also do some reading with them?
1: Yes, actually, we do. What do you do? We have, um, we have books, uh, and part of uh, our requirement for working in our salon is that you have to read certain books, and again, that's another thing they can do with downtime. Um, one of my favorite books is The Alchemist. Uh, another one is um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which we made ours five functions of a team, but that's kind of the foundation we have things like Who Moved My Cheese, Fish, um, uh, uh, Eckhart Tolle's uh, A New Earth, which is a lot about the ego and how that gets in the way. You know, it's just, um, I, I don't remember all the different books, but we have lots of books, and that's another thing we do at every meeting is what are you reading? What have you gotten out of it?
0: So that's unusual, right? That's not a common practice for most salons.
1: Definitely not.
0: And do they like it? Do the... They
1: love it. It keeps us motivated. You know, one of the things you'd ask me is somebody comes in and, you know, they may have had a difficult time at home and, you know, yes, that does happen, but it lasts about five minutes. Because once you're at work and at huddle, one of the things we do is throw out an inspiration. And then after that, you know, it's, it's again, working on positive attitude, working on being grateful, working on, you know, the power of positive thinking. Like one of the things we did when this latest salon opened up in our shopping center is we weren't allowed to say negative things about it. We had to <laughs> wish them well because what I said to them is our success does not depend on their failure and why should we send out negative energy because what happens is you get it back.
0: Yeah, it's a big world too. There's lots of lots of salons. The one next door doesn't necessarily really make that much of a difference.
1: Yes, and it's funny because people will come and say, well, Sam, what about the other salon? And I just look at him and I say, what other salon? (laughs) 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 So so that's what the reading does. It keeps our head above water. It keeps our head in a positive place.
0: What about... uh... Taxes and regulations, what role do they play in your life and as a small business person? And it's a little bit in the news these days. Uh, obviously, you have to be licensed to be in your business, so that's one regulation. What other things come up uh, in, in, those, in the role of government in your life?
1: Uh, well, yes, all the licenses have to be up to date. Um, sanitation is a huge one in our business. First of all, it makes sense. But if the state board does come in, which they do, and randomly just do, um, they just check around, make sure everything's up to par, you know, what they really look for is sanitation, that you're not spreading any kind of disease, there's not anything that, you know, is um, has any kind of bacteria or fungus. So, and but we don't want that also, because, boy, you mess one person up that way, it's all over. Yeah. Um, and we don't want to. Uh, otherwise, let's see, the role of government. Well, recently, you know, one of the things I inherited is a tanning um, business. So there's about four tanning rooms, which are not going to be there for much longer. But recently, as of July 1st, there was a 10% tanning tax that we had to implement. Hmm. We passed it on to the client, you know. Yep. It's not great, but yep. we had to do it. Um you know, other than that, I just make sure that the 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 eyes are dotted and the Ts are crossed. I How have an accountant that I work with. Right. Make sure you know all taxes are paid. We have a payroll company that takes care of all the payroll stuff. So, so that that that's about it. Um, you know, we try to to look where are where maybe some government opportunities that can help us. Um, so for example. Right now, we signed up with a company that is um, wind powered, and so our electrical is wind. And I know that there is a Montgomery County um, uh, tax um, incentive for that.
0: You're saying, I'm sorry, oh, you're, so your electric, your electric power is wind. Is that what you said?
1: Well, we're with a company that that sells wind power. Uh huh. And so, yes, that's. We're 100% wind powered. And all that really means, because I couldn't figure it out either, yeah, it, how do you get sounds, wind into the grid?
0: Yeah, it sounds like kind of a, a sham. If I, I'm worried oh, about really? that. It could be. I don't know. Just a thought. Well,
1: the way they explained it is yes, we're using typical electricity. I mean, this is through WGES, so it's not, you know, uh, just a uh, kind of fly by, by the night company. And what they do is whatever we use in electricity, they equally will by the wind power for yeah. it, and so it offsets.
0: Yeah, it's a nice idea. Com- ad- might be a nice idea, I don't know, but the government's, the government's giving you a tax break if you do it that, right?
1: Montgomery County does give us a tax yeah. incentive,
0: yes. So the company must like that. I don't know if it's good for the world, but it's an interesting idea. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, let me, let me ask you, we're almost out of time, two more things, then we'll, we'll be done. Because I know you have a business to run. Thank you. Um, licensing, do you think if, Imagine a world where there was no licensing. You didn't have to pass that, that, that exam. Uh, do you think it would change anything? Do you think your, your, in your salon it would be any different?
1: Hmm, good question. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, because, you know, um, being able to get through a difficult test and passing will set people apart from those who can't. It requires some
0: drive and dedication.
1: Exactly, and, and level of educational ability also.
0: But do you think that, do you think the, I think if you ask the the board why they require licensing, it's to prevent people from getting a ghastly haircut, right?
1: Uh, mostly, but I think it has a lot more to do with disease and sanitation.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So that's a, a important part of cosmetology school?
1: Yes, absolutely. What are some of
0: the things you'd learn there related to that?
1: Um, you know, how to identify different, um, skin infections on the scalp or nail infections. Um, what is, um, spreadable, what isn't, um, how to identify lice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hate lice. Yeah. Um, what to do in case, you know, any mistake is made or anything gets on your implements, how to prevent disease from spreading. I think a lot of it is about that. So that's valuable. Yeah.
0: What I want to ask you in closing is, um... You were you are originally from Egypt, correct? Yes. And you have um I looked at your your team page. You've got people from Kenya? Yes. Ethiopia, Colombia, Yemen, and a couple of people from the great state of Maryland. <laughs> um what was it what do you think the advantages and disadvantages are there for somebody who comes to the United States? From, from somewhere else, doesn't speak the language, um, and why are your employees so international?
1: What are the advantages for someone who comes to the United States? I'm going to tell you a quick story about my dad. My dad was a very well-educated Egyptian man. He was, really, there's kind of more or less two classes in Egypt, the poor and the rich. And if you're poor, your opportunity isn't great no matter how well-educated you are. He came to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1970 and didn't have a lot of English. He worked in the Hardee's, and he worked as a janitor in Charlotte Community Hospital. Um, Ended up getting another master's while he was here. Five years later, in 1975, he was the head administrator for Charlotte Community Hospital. (laughs) That can only happen here.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful story.
1: It is. It's a great story. And as far as my team being from uh, around the world, you know, we live in the Washington, D.C. area, and every other person is from somewhere else. Um, I'm at Montgomery Mall a lot, and I'll walk by groups of people, and each group is speaking a different language, and I love that. You just feel, you know, I grew up in Charlotte in the 70s. I was the only one I knew like me. And it's so nice to be in a place where everyone celebrates different holidays and speaks different languages. So um, I can just tell you that our salon is just a symbol of our area, really. It's nothing more than that. And it's so much fun to learn about, you know, all the different cultures, but also how the same we are.
0: My guest today has been Wafea Abdallah. Wafea, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you so much for having me.